1: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And this week, The Economist asks, is the language of politics broken? It can feel as if we're living in unusually fractured political times, with divisive language to match, especially if you follow at RealDonaldTrump on Twitter. The effectiveness of demagoguery is matched by the breakneck speed of the news cycle, at once out of control and easily manipulated. Social media promised an era of much greater inclusivity and people power, but in practice it can lend itself to the outsized impact of gut instincts and emotions and superficial debates fueled by rage or fear. But is any of this really new? And is it really the decline of political language or merely growing pains of greater democratisation? A new book argues forcefully that we've indeed entered a new and dangerous territory in political language. Mark Thompson is a former director general of the BBC and currently chief executive of the New York Times. Mark's also the author of Enough Said, What's Gone Wrong with the Language of Politics? Mark joins me now. Hello, Mark.
2: Hi. Hi there.
1: And with us too is our own languages expert, Lane Green, our Johnson columnist. So, Mark, to start from the beginning, in enough said, you argue that we're seeing a breakdown of trust between people who talk about politics, politicians, journalists, experts. What makes that a problem with language rather than a problem with ideas? Well,
2: I think, firstly, the ideas which constitute politics in practical terms are only ever exchanged in or principally exchanged in words, to some extent in images, but principally in words. And I believe that political ideas and the language of politics are so tangled up um, that it's impossible to kind of distinguish them in- entirely. And moreover, I'd say that that some of what we're seeing—and I'm I'm talking about long-term trends—I'm not suggesting that there's very much that's new. I think the digital acceleration of the news cycle is new and is a, is a fact. But much of What we're talking about is long-term trends, but I do think we're at a point where one can feel some fundamental things. For example, the ability of voters to distinguish between what is true and what is not true becoming more problematic than it's been in the past.
1: Give me an example of that.
2: Brexit is a very current example. I think the Brexit debate, on both sides, by the way. Take back control of huge sums of money, £350 million a week. That leaving the EU would put our security at huge risk. A remorseless torrent of propaganda. Incomes fall, mortgage rates go up, and the value of the family home falls too. The most imminent
0: and urgent threat and problem that faces this country, namely open-door immigration.
2: There were moments in that debate where it was pretty clear, and I think there's some evidence in, in the opinion polls and subsequent post-match analysis that voters were really struggling to work work out, in a sense, what was actually true on the basis of what they heard. But Um, wouldn't that
1: always be the case, where you have something that is so contentious that facts become the subject of of interpretation? And I suppose this is one of my challenges to you about the analysis, is how do you then decide where is it a problem because language is being degraded, and this is something New, as opposed to just a bit of mudslinging that's gone on in politics since since ancient Greece. And something that feels to you to have changed as a category. Can you give me a moment where you thought, I can see it here?
2: I mean, Donald Trump's success is almost entirely a product of his own language. He's not a politician. There's no political track record. You judge Donald Trump almost entirely on his own voice on what he says and how he says it.
0: That's a typical case of the press with misinterpretation they take a half a sentence they take a half a sentence by the way they take a half a sentence then they take a quarter of a sentence they put it all together
2: he says it in a way which is very different from a traditional politician it may not carry him into the white house but it's carried him very very far
1: do you agree with that, Lane Green, that Donald Trump, if you like, is a kind of phantom tollbooth, a creature of words?
0: Well, I think politicians are almost by definition creatures of words. Ever since King stopped going into battle on their own horse with their own sword, they've led by talking to people, by giving speeches, by having conversations, by doing things with words.
1: Is Trump different?
0: He is. I think he's different in a couple of dimensions. And one is that he's very effective. His opponents want to mock him sometimes. And I think that's unwise because he's obviously an effective speaker. If If what I just said is true and that politicians mainly only do things with words, he's obviously doing something right. He wiped the floor with his primary field opponents and he's hanging in there despite being very unpopular for lots of the things he said.
1: Uh, Mark, you bring up the distinction between authenticist language and... I suppose what we might call old-fashioned rationalism or post-enlightenment, trying to get clarity about concepts through language. Give me an example of where you think this contrast lies.
2: That drama is playing out in a presidential election where Hillary Clinton, who in some ways is the policy wonk's policy wonk, set against Donald Trump, who won't really give any truck to that kind of systematic step-by-step evidence-based approach to building an argument at all. And I call them authenticists because I think true authenticity is in the eyes of the beholder. I'm talking about people who aim for authenticity and aim for making a point of authenticity. Authenticists much prefer storytelling and the creation of of narratives to anything which looks anything close to kind of dialectical argument. They would much rather tell a story which is almost always, I'd argue, some version of an us-and-them story. Us, which binds the speaker to the audience, and them, some other, the 1%, the elites, Washington, immigrants, foreigners. And I think there are abundant examples across the world right now, not just in America— Um, During the Brexit campaign in the UK, I would argue what we're seeing in Italy with Beppe Grillo and his extraordinary success, what we're seeing in other European countries of an authenticist attack on the language of the elite.
1: Where do you see that, Langreen? if indeed you, you do agree with that? Is that divide, that binary divide, one that you recognize?
0: I think that that concept of authenticism is a great one. I'm going to steal that term because I think it's, it's really lovely. I think there are some empirical facts to describe the phenomenon you're talking about. One is the way politicians increasingly, and I think especially since the 1960s, have chosen to speak more and more like the people they're talking to. If you think about the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt had a very educated upper class New York accent with the only thing we have to fear is fear itself the only thing we have to fear is fear itself And it was meant to kind of elevate him to show his patrician roots. And now what politicians do is they dress up their accents to sound more like the working class or the ordinary people, George Bush's Texan accent. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump both have very pronounced New York accents, especially Bernie Sanders, particularly working class, a little bit Jewish sounding. This is is to sound a lot more like their voters and a lot less somebody up on a pedestal. And you see this in other phenomena, like uh, sentences getting shorter in the average State of the Union, uh, addressed by a president, average word length getting shorter everything is getting more informal and more conversational and i think that's a part of that you will remember mark Mark
1: thompson in your bbc days i think you were still in charge when someone noticed that tony blair never had any verbs in speeches (laughs) Uh, so verbs seem to have uh, been on their way out but that that breakdown of structure all of that's
2: very interesting and and there's a moment when words like sword no longer work it's like you know a kind of backward looking reference to a sort of heroic past, which the, the rather grand politician could sort of share and elevate policy to a kind of higher plane, it just becomes difficult. Now, in, in the book, and I, I have to say, it's not precise this, but my impressionistic account is of Richard Nixon as an example of a politician struggling with the death of one kind of American political rhetoric.
0: Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got
2: and then a few years later, Ronald Reagan arriving and, in my view, utterly brilliantly finding a new set of registers.
0: I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. (laughs) I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help.
2: All of them based on this this more personal, yep. more direct, more humorous, more in some ways self-deprecating language.
1: What do we reckon to political language becoming coarser? I think swearing is, is something uh, Lane, that you have pointed out when you've been writing uh, about politics. It used to be sort of right on the borderline of the acceptable for politicians. It could undermine you as much as it could build you up. Has that changed?
0: I think that Donald Trump is uh, super generous in this way. He's been swearing his campaign more than any politician in modern memory, and I think maybe maybe in world history, at least in English-speaking history. In 2000, when George Bush was caught off mic, but caught by a hot mic, uh, telling his uh, vice presidential candidate that a New York Times reporter was an asshole. <laughs> That made a major news story for about a week. Donald Trump has let so many of those by. Every swear word in the book, maybe one or two accepted. Give a damn. They're going to sue his ass off. Knock the hell out of him. We're going to knock the shit out of ice. She said he's a pussy. Tell them to go themselves. Listen, you mother. we're going to tax you 25%. And he finally was forced to make a promise not to swear anymore. And of all the promises he's made, he's actually kept that one so far. As far as I know, he hasn't been swearing since he made that statement. But that was really unprecedented. And I think an empirical proof of at least one kind of coarsening. And I'd say certainly in my lifetime, I mean,
2: once words like that were essentially limited in terms of public language to graffiti, anonymous graffiti. You know, it was was in, you know, toilets and on brick walls that you'd see words like that. The internet's relevant here, I think, and the the way in which a vast public discourse, largely either semi-anonymous, you know, nom de guerre, or completely anonymous, um, which is where a lot of politics is discussed now and where anything goes and and, an extremity of language, bullying behaviour, personal, you know, demonisation – and I think to some extent there's been a, a leeching back of that back into discourse of politicians and other public Well, that's figures. the
1: interesting point, isn't it? Because I'm maybe not so surprised about that. I think if you have a wall of anonymity or near anonymity, you can imagine that all sorts of things come flooding out. But you do come up with a, a very interesting phrase that you cite, Schrodinger's douchebag. You, you've got to tell us about that.
2: Schrodinger's douchebag, which, which occasionally I think Donald Trump gets quite close to, is trying a remark out and seeing the reaction, and only deciding once you've seen the reaction whether you want to retrospectively add inverted commas, I was only joking, I was being ironic, or whether you actually meant it. I think it's quite a profound idea, which is a speaker can can say something not having prior... A determination of what the thing is meant to mean you say the words but you haven't decided yet what they mean you see the reaction and then you apply whichever meaning you want afterwards and i think that sometimes trump has, has said stuff and his remark about the the second amendment maybe the second Amend- amendment people could do something about hillary clinton he said a few weeks ago now that could mean a number of things it could actually mean that america's gun owners could shoot her did he mean that he said he was being sarcastic afterwards. When there was a big four or a day later, he was being sarcastic. It's not clear to me that that Trump had to decide when he said it how sarcastic he was being.
1: But if we look at Shakespeare's Coriolanus, we see Coriolanus has a good go at uh, the poor old plebeians, the common cry of curs whose breath I hate, as reek of the rotten fence. And his spin doctor, I Menenius, has to go around saying he doesn't really mean that. You know, he's a, he's he got a bit head up. He had a cup of hot wine and then it just happened. Am I right in thinking, well, this may have happened more before. We just didn't have a good trendy name for it.
0: Well, there's Kerr and then there's uh, some of the things that Donald Trump has said. I mean, we really there's always been hot rhetoric in politics. You can look at, um, you know, James G. Blaine, continental liar from the state of Maine, a late 19th century American political attack. Um, You can see this kind of thing all throughout history. But the but the swearing and the direct use of crooked and liar and things like that. And then she lies now. You know, I call somebody a liar, but I don't say that anymore because that person is now in the past. I say that person's
1: in the past. And with Hillary, we say crooked Hillary.
0: There are reasons that those kind of words are banned in many parliamentary contexts, including the British
1: one. Would you ban these words, Mark Thompson?
0: No.
2: No, I think that I also talk in the book about the enemies of freedom of expression gathering force. In the end, we have to battle our way through to a more civilised pluralistic public debate about the issues that matter, not through censorship, but by essentially through a difficult transition caused by the disruption in politics, disruption in media and so on, to
1: a new set of kind of conventions. So where do journalists fit into this? You talk about adversarial interviewing, of course, as a former BBC Director General, you probably felt some of the backwash from from those adversarial interviews. Yeah, you, I'm you cite pretty, to... I'm pretty... Are about
2: that? I'm pretty bullish about adversarial interviewing. I think that, particularly in the UK, very deep in our national culture is the cross-exam, the sense you get to the truth by adversarial devil's advocate-style advocate uh, questioning. And, I mean, what I do think is that if... The right balance where politicians are allowed to say and convey some of their own thoughts in their own words to the public and are then cross-examined on their policies, I'm strongly in favour of. I broadly actually am a big defender of the the adversarial style of one or two famous BBC presenters.
1: What about other cultures Lane how much do other cultures, perhaps in Europe and beyond that you've experienced or written about have the same kind of problems with language politics public discourse and where are there completely different ones?
0: It's a good question, because I think that culture feeds into this quite a bit. As you can see, America and the UK are quite different in a lot of ways. I don't think that Donald Trump swearing and that kind of talk is really common here. There's some commonalities to the English speaking world, partly because we follow each other's debates a bit. We read each other's papers and watch each other on TV. I spent the last couple of years covering Germany. And of course, Germany's most famous rhetorical contribution to the 20th century is the grainy (laughs) films we all know of Hitler standing up there and spellbinding audiences. And that gave Germany more or less a permanent allergy to hot rhetoric, to was a very pathos inducing uh, yeah. you know, uh, talk. And so I would describe German political rhetoric as almost strategically boring. And I think that the master of it is is Merkel.
1: Some expect my speech to pave the way for a re- fundamental reform of the European architecture, which will satisfy all kinds of alleged or
0: actual British wishes. I'm afraid. They are in for a disappointment. She deploys a kind of calm, a sort of weary sigh, <laughs> I'll say it again if you really need me to, kind of attitude and tone of voice all the time. And there's just very little in the way of this spiky sloganeering that you get in in America and Britain, for example. It's interesting to speculate whether Theresa May may, as we're moving, you know, after the kind of hot
2: flush of the Brexit debate, whether we could see in this country as well a kind of calmer... uh, Soporific speak. uh, Well, there are worse things in life than actually speaking plainly and dispassionately about what you aim to do as a government.
1: I want to turn to solutions, but uh, one thought that I did have as I was reading, it's clearly written with great eloquence. It's rather heartfelt. I mean, I felt that these are things that you'd been storing up and sort of mulling uh, over for some time. And yet there was a little inkling in me that, that thought, is there here. Yeah. A kind of worry among elites that if you take off the rules and the fetters of language we might actually have to listen to what a lot of people are saying that we may not like the sound of it could be on immigration it could be in the Brexit debate it could be on Trump and uh, Mexicans it could be any number of things where perhaps the desire to keep language within certain bounds is also a way of I, not well, I agree. Hearing I I agree. perhaps I didn't
2: expect it. perhaps I didn't set this out clearly enough on the board but I very strongly agree with that and I think the attempt by elites to suppress a public debate about immigration and about race, which I I take to be a way of not trusting the public, that if you allow that debate to take take place, dangerous demons will be let out, itself is based on an idea, a conjecture, that if you don't talk about things, they sort themselves out. Or Or if you stop people talking about a subject, they stop thinking about it. It appears not to be true, and I think that one of the things that's precipitated the crisis is elites assuming that you can almost socially engineer certain things out of the public consciousness by not discussing them at all, instead of which I think we've seen immigration but did, you, in particular did you fail on strength. that
1: score when you were overseeing the BBC then because one felt that the BBC had you know and I still feel as a partly as a BBC broadcaster a certain constraint on what is acceptable to say on air and what isn't well, have me, we kind let, of let, failed let me let me let you
2: into dirty secret maybe is not perfect and never has been we tried quite hard i mean over the years when i was director general we started routinely having migration watch and voices of concern about immigration in the studio as recently as the 2000s the main political parties were avoiding this discussion Almost entirely. And there were election campaigns where we would raise immigration as a policy issue, even if neither party was was mainstreaming. And you records a the famous incident where I decided on balance uh, that we should have the head of the British National Party on question time. Several senior politicians from all the major parties thought it was bad to even think about having someone from the BNP. Um, raising that perspective in front of a national audience.
1: Lane, Lane, having read uh, Mark's book and also written in this territory yourself, how would you advise a politician to speak now? It almost seems like we we want this golden mean and it's very hard to define, isn't it? We want folks in us. We want short sentences. We don't want them to sound as if they're Franklin D. Roosevelt. On the other hand, we don't particularly all want them to sound like they're Nigel Farage or, or Donald Trump either. Do we want too much from politicians in the way they speak?
0: They need to master several registers. A good politician will be able to give the grand speech on a serious occasion, will be able to muster a speech on a hurry-up if a disaster or tragedy happens. They'll also be good in an interview. They'll also be good in a one-on-one chat. To some extent, it's a native skill. All politicians, however, should try to develop all of them because it's not just one skill, speaking.
1: Mark, are you optimistic that political language could get back to a better place? And what might the roadmap to that look like?
0: Well, well I
2: think, uh, I think <laughs> I'm think i very optimistic that it will. I I I think human history suggests that we're rational beings. We know we need to get on with each other. We know we need to work through our differences. You'd expect stability to return. It's very hard to predict when, though. I think a lot of shocks have happened. The class structures which inform politics and to some extent inform political language have changed. The ideological clarity of the Cold War is gone. Media is very disrupted. And the way people consume information is utterly different than it was even 10 years ago. Arguably
1: society is more segmented. Why are you so optimistic? Well,
2: so I think of this as a transition where a large number of disruptive new kind of developments have thrown public language out of true. But it's very hard to predict whether we've got an issue which is going to be decades long or whether we could see some improvement sooner rather than later.
1: I'd just like to consult our Twitter followers and ask them to send us their favourite political slogan. You don't have to agree with it. It just has to be good or resonant. And that has given Mark and Lane at least seven seconds to tell me theirs. Lane.
0: I was just thinking of, for some reason it came to me, a chicken in every pot. This is a Great Depression slogan, um, and it's the most concrete thing you can imagine. You talk about a square deal, a fair deal, a new deal, a great society, a big society... None of these things are things that you can stub your toe on. The concrete words are the words that make an image in your mind. One of my favorites, for
2: slightly different reasons, actually, I got from Chris Patton, who worked for Ted Heath uh, on a Conservative Party manifesto, which, which was called Actions, Not Words. But, of course... Well, that was 15,000 words long and that's really the problem that very sadly most politicians want to get away from the idea that this is just words it's going to be about real things but the only way you can do it is through words
1: I'm very pleased as a chief executive that you, you <laughs> see the problem with the 15,000 words there Mark I think I'm going to stick with we've nothing to fear but fear itself because nobody can remember really or very few people what it refers to but it yeah. always sounds great and it always makes you feel a bit better
2: I'll give you one more.
0: No surrender.
1: Happy with that, Lane?
0: Uh, No surrender here.
1: (laughs) Mark Thompson, Lane Green, no surrender. Thank you both very much. If you'd like to get in touch with us with your favourite slogans, you can do so Twitter at Economist Radio or radio at Economist.com. That's all from me, Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams